welcome back to episode two of Concourse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for having a listen. Um, really excited to be back. Uh, be sharing another fantastic uh, social football story today uh, from an organisation over in South Australia, the, the neighbouring states, was here in Victoria, uh, from an organisation called One Culture, which I'll come on to in a couple of minutes. Um, hopefully, you had a listen to last week's episode. Uh, that was with the big issue here in Australia, uh, and specifically the guys responsible for setting up the street soccer initiative for the homeless community. What a fantastic story it was as well! You know, something's grown into um, an initiative that's allowed them to really showcase Australia on the international stage by taking teams to the Homeless World Cup and also hosting the Homeless World Cup in Fed Square a few years ago. And um, yeah, I've not been back through the city yet since our lockdown restrictions eased last week um, but it'd be nice to go back by Fed Square a place where I spent quite a bit of time when I did first move here when we when we lived quite centrally and in the CBD and um, yeah I can only imagine what another homeless World Cup might look like uh, out of Melbourne of course those things uh, given what's going on in the world are uh, some time away unfortunately but we can hope and, uh, and have things to look forward to nonetheless um, yeah, not um, not a great deal been happening here in terms of uh, football. I think everybody's itching for um, the FFA and the FFV, which is the state-based one, to uh, to get the game back up and running now. Um, but it'll be a couple of weeks until contact sports allowed. But as I mentioned last week, been having a couple of kickabouts, and it is nice that the weather's sort of heading the right way now. But it has to be said, with the clocks changing, it definitely knocks you for six a little bit. I think if you're in the northern hemisphere at the moment and you've uh, you've gained the hours sleep, you're obviously gaining a little bit of darkness and a little bit less daylight for it as well. Um, and of course, you feel so much more energetic, you know, in the sunshine or, or in the daylight. So, yeah, I think uh, as I remember that a few months ago, uh, with the clocks going back for winter, it definitely felt pretty lethargic when it changed. So you've just got to take it easy and um, not be too hard on yourself. There's <laughs> quite a bit being hard on us at the moment that's for sure in the world here the clocks have gone the other way they've gone forward uh, so while there's more daylight which has been fantastic it was a slog getting out of bed the first couple of weeks but one thing that's been a big benefit now the clocks have changed on both sides of the globe is um, football's on in the morning which is fantastic so I've caught a couple of second halves across the last few days I saw uh, Leeds and, and Leicester this morning Leeds looked fantastic coming out after the break but obviously it wasn't it wasn't to be um, and there'll be a little bit of Champions League this week. Seems so strange. Um, usually the season's a couple of weeks in before we start playing Champions League football, but uh, we're playing games week in, week out at the moment to obviously catch up with the delayed season and how long that might last uh, is anyone's guess at the moment. Um, I guess there's more countries, um, more countries around Europe going to deeper and, and harsher lockdowns. There's obviously some really tough... Um, impacts on us as individuals when that happens and um, speaking a little bit from experience there having gone through 15 weeks of pretty hard lockdown conditions here in Melbourne and uh, in winter different challenges for me here in the, in the sense of um, perhaps a smaller community um, a smaller social community I just hope people um, especially where I'm from back in the UK um, and in European countries People are at home in the home countries, you know, have people down the road that they can at least get out for a walk with and, and have that engagement. Um, you know, you, you need each other to get through this situation. Uh, mentally, it can be quite tough. 
Um, next week we'll we'll have a chat about that because we have our third and final instalment of the podcast with uh, Sid Dupree, who are the mental health uh, support group um, established by a group of St Pauli football fans. And of course, St Pauli need need little introduction. They seem to be everybody's favourite hipster club these days, but of course they're, they're so much more at the same time too. Um, but uh, yeah, let's let's have a chat about one culture. Now, this story starts with when I were a lad. So bear with me, and yeah, I'm showing my age now. But when I were a lad, I was lucky to play football all the time. Where we lived, we had these sets of garages uh, for the whole estate. So we'd set up a pitch between a couple of opposing garage doors and often play 2v2s, which I'm pretty sure is the universal name for the game, where you rotate combinations um, of teams with you and three other mates. Three matches, first of five. Obviously, heads and volleys with Tanners for being in the goal on 10 were custom. Wembley singles and Wembley doubles, of course, too. I think some places perhaps maybe even call it cuppies in some parts of the world. Not too sure. Anyway, you played at dinner time, you played for school, you played for a Saturday team, you played for a Sunday team. It literally was all around you. And the shoulder season was a bit of a stretch for me because I opened the bowling two nights a week um, from a local cricket team and uh, was also training for pre-season as well. Um, so it was football and cricket morning, noon and night during the summer. Um, but yeah, definitely as we got through into the colder months, it was 24-7 having a kick around for me. A part of why it was so easy was because it's pretty affordable really, you know, a couple of quid a week to cover the ref and the pitch, uh, you know, training ground or sports hall, whatever it might be. You know, rarely did we have changing rooms that we needed to cover. You just turned up in your kit, got muddy, went home afterwards. Well, the model is a little bit different here in Australia. Um, the signing fee with the league itself is actually quite a bit higher for a start. Um, you know, you might have paid like five or ten pounds or something as a kid growing up in England. It's like literally, you know, hundreds of dollars here. Uh, so the clubs generally charge up front, and that can make it hard for some families at the same time as well to actually come up with you know a big lump sum, especially if you've got two, three kids, maybe more in the family. Um, the clubs often have a lot, often offer a lot of flexibility on that, but you know there's still um, some affordability issues for some. Now, for most clubs I've played for and against, or coached for or against. The money does go a long way, you know, I see good kit, tracksuits, changing rooms, good equipment, good facilities, but for some it's unaffordable whether you pay cash up front or on the drip if the club allows you to do that. Now I've volunteered at, coached at and played at my fair share of grassroots amateur clubs, so what I'm about to say next is by no means a criticism, but what volunteers put into clubs in terms of time and energy is huge. Resources, though, they are limited, and this can mean for kids that might be disabled, it's hard to participate. There isn't you know, a team for them, or they're not included in sessions properly. Similar for kids that might have migrated here, um, and have maybe come from poorer countries and poorer backgrounds, and are also new to the culture. They come from a different culture and find it challenging to fit in, or don't get the welcome they seek, and sometimes deterred from, from going back playing, you know, turning up for that second training session. So I stumbled across one culture in Adelaide and I was really intrigued when I did. One of a few questions I've wanted to ask through this podcast is, is the top level of the game doing enough to help tackle social issues that impact the fans, the people who the game really can't survive with? You know, and whilst we're watching a lot of t- football on the TV at the moment, for the lower leagues, 
you know, fans truly are the lifeblood uh, of the game. So in the first uh, part of the podcast, you're going to hear me catch up with Izzy Souter, uh, who's one of the team at One Culture, and we're going to find out what they do in terms of football, but also beyond. And following, we'll look at the state of play in the Premier League, the richest league in the world. What are the clubs doing to create a game for all, particularly in terms of spectating? First up, here's my catch-up from earlier in the year with Izzy. What sparked off um, the organisation and and what was the original sort of vision and mission and, and how's that going? Yeah, so it all started um, that we've got two um, founders, uh, Josh Smith and Nada Ibrahim. Um, so they were working their own jobs in the multicultural sector and they really noticed um, a gap in the market for um, opportunities for multicultural um, kids to get out there and get involved in the sport. Ones that didn't have access to local clubs, that might be because of a language barrier or um a money barrier they couldn't afford to join the local teams so they joined together um to start sort of street football so um giving kids an opportunity to play football for free um they'd get a free bus ticket and they'd also get fruit and water when they came along as well so they actually built that up to begin with and they had around 60 kids because they had a lot of connections through their prior work so 60 kids that came along to begin with and it's just it's just grown from there, and now we see over about 800 kids in total across the different programs that we run on the multicultural sector. So they started like doing that, and then they noticed that you know what else can we do? Who else can we help that uh, are from disadvantaged groups? And that's when they turned to the disability side of things. Um, and there was a program that ran in the city to begin with, and there was about um, 20 kids that went along to that. Um, city program um, and since then since starting this back in April in 2017 we've grown on the disability side from that one program to we now run um, six current programs um, soon to be seven and currently there's about 150 kids that and adults that are engaged in these programs and 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 also we offer support work as well so there's been a vast increase in, in, in a very short amount of time because that need and demand is just there and will really continue to always be there. Um, so that's how this all came about and, and started to grow from there until what we are now, which um, we're extremely proud of what we do and we just continue to strive to grow and um, develop more programs so that we can offer opportunities for as many people out there as possible that can't have that access to the, the regular clubs that other kids that other kids can that's a great story and I, I i hear that challenge as well because i was surprised when i did my first junior coaching role here in australia i coached up at fitzroy so the first team of the uh, victorian north um state one at the moment there was state two when i was there and i had a kick in the reserves and i coached the under 14s and, and took them through to under 16s and when i were a lad to uh to go back to my northern roots you know it was a pound or two a week um and that was to pay for yeah. the floodlights the kit the referee and it, it really wasn't about having this bigger infrastructure and many clubs i played for in our area were just junior clubs they weren't connected to uh, adult teams that that may pay um semi-pro 
player wages and I have seen that model here with a couple of clubs that uh, the subscriptions might be a few hundred dollars close to even a thousand dollars in some instances to play um, yeah. and often that model is used to support a, a first team um, uh, pay to play salary uh, where we're paying first team players at, at the amateur level and if I think about the size of soccer in Australia um, you, know, you probably think the participation levels are probably about as high as I don't know maybe hockey or something in the UK and because it's sort of sort of a smaller crowd maybe players with a certain level of ability here might manage to get a hundred or a couple of hundred bucks per week but if they went to play in the UK they might pay five or ten pounds to play the other way um, and, and yeah. I've seen that here that a lot of youth systems are sometimes used for, for better or worse to support the the senior level and I can see then how that might cut out certain demographics within a community from from playing the game definitely definitely um and a, a lot of refugees that come over here from australia as well um sorry they come over to australia we've noticed as well that um a lot of them they tend to cluster in certain areas so it's really important as well to have that free access for that mm. community growth so they're around people that can speak their language that can relate to them um that they can build those friendships and those networks so helps them you know come coming as a kid that potentially you can't speak any english um you've got nowhere else to turn to and sport is a language that anyone can speak and you know um you can just play with your feet and you don't have to speak but you can still build those connections at the same time do you, do you think or do you hope that after the lockdowns um, have gone away and, and we've got back to some form of normality so for, for, for many of us in Australia that might be European migrants, English speaking, um, and the game is a massive part of our cultural her heritage from our ancestral country, um, and, and we, we sort of transpose that into our life here, we've had that taken away at the moment, and we're feeling the impact of not having team sport and that engagement. Do you think or yeah. do you hope people will be more inclusive and more welcoming of, of other cultures uh, and other demographics after the lockdown? You think there's an opportunity for clubs to, to, to be a bit more, more open in that respect, even though they maybe purposely aren't at the moment, but do you think they'd be more mindful of that? That's a good question. Um, it's tough, isn't it, really? I think everyone's going to be just so desperate to get out there and play that um, they're going to grasp at any opportunities, but at the same time, clubs have lost a lot of money. So they're, they're going to be desperate to get any memberships and money that they can to survive. So mm. whether they're going to be more inclusive of people that can't necessarily afford the fees, it's, it's a tough, tough call to make. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, tough challenge. But you, you'd hope that you'd hope that they'd be more inclusive and it's definitely this whole COVID has been very eye opening for everyone to be more understanding of of the world and different cultures and how everyone's been in this experience together um but it's yeah who knows who knows who knows quite who knows? right well coming yeah. coming back to your team there so you mentioned the founders earlier and obviously yourself how big's the team there so we have five or oh, five of us in the office um at the minute um so my title is services coordinator so I typically handle all the um, disability side of things because, like I said, we started off with a disability program 
and we noticed from that that there was a demand there for, say, some parents that needed a little bit of respite, um, so they just wanted someone to pick their child up and bring them to the program. So we just started doing that support work, and then from there it's grown so that people just wanted one-on-one football sessions or take them out to the park and do a fitness session. Um, and since then, it's 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 really grown and taken off um, from there. So I handle all of that side of things and communications with parents and everything like that. So um, frees up Josh and Nada to to focus on the future rather than the current. So um, and there's two others in the office that HR and things like that. So yeah, we're a small little team, but. Um, we have we have about forty staff in total that work for us um, oh, wow. on the ground as support workers, um, and most of them come from multicultural backgrounds. So it's a big thing of what we do. Um, we want to have um, people that can speak lots of different languages on our team, so that we can relate to as many different people as possible. Because that's another thing um, in the disability side of things. A lot of people can't speak English and they don't understand these NDIS plans that they get handed and, you know, they need someone that can communicate and explain things to them in their own language. So that's definitely an, a, um, like a unique selling point that we have, that we have a lot of people that speak different languages and it really helps us to connect with a, a whole range of people. So while the, the support's clearly going well beyond, you know, any technical coaching or providing a social context for people to engage in, um, yeah. We're really going into people's lives here and supporting them with important life. I mean, we all hate life admin, but for the type of people that, that sort of in your target audience, um, life admin's pretty important to them getting by in Australia, and you're obviously giving them some extra support there by the sounds of it. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> and you, you mentioned with Josh and Nada as well, so they can focus on the future. Well, what is that for you guys? I mean, are you just SA based at the moment? Is is that a national plan? What what comes next for you? At the minute, it's going to remain in in SA, but for sure, we've um, would like to branch out in the future um, because what we do, there isn't really much out there similar, um, and we'd love to 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 grow that to the rest of Australia and. Um, continue providing those opportunities that a lot of um, people don't currently have access to. Um, but yeah, for now, we're just focusing on SA. And like I said, we currently have, in the disability side of things, we have um, six programs. We're going to be opening a new one in Campbelltown. Um, that's opening soon. And just, yeah, continue to grow from there and continue to grow the multicultural side of things as well. Um and keep going from there yeah sure sure and you mentioned obviously disabilities before what what might that encompass because we've talked about um in our pre-chat with this you know perhaps physical disabilities or may even just be being disadvantaged from a cultural background but when, when we're talking about the individuals are we talking about um physical disabilities mental disabilities and if you have that range how how is it how can you cater for a group when there's perhaps such a broad spectrum of, of disabilities um that might be impacting the, the group how do, how do you manage that yeah. to make sure that everybody gets the desired benefit you want to give them that must be a challenge yeah it, it can be difficult but um and we have a lots lots of different array of people that do come along and play some might have sort of um 
for autism, that doesn't affect their physical um, side of things at all. But then we do have people with physical disabilities who they might have cerebral palsy, so they really struggle to to um, to run or stand up by themselves for long periods of time. So we have some boys that ha that have um, walking frames that they use. Yep. Um, but what we tend to do, we have a lot of staff on hand. And when we do have kids that need that extra attention, then we assign a staff member to work with them to really help them engage and, um, you know, involve them with everyone else so they don't feel left out. But, um, yeah, it, it can be a challenge. But at the same time, having that range of different disabilities, physical or um, intellectual disabilities, um, it's so important for them to to learn how to be inclusive that's a big thing that kids learn when coming to us that initially they might try and steal the ball and steal the thunder because they just want to score the goals but then they learn that it's not all about that it's about teamwork and helping those that aren't as able as them to understand the game or learn how to kick a ball and they really it, it's, it's incredible seeing all the kids learning how how important it is to share the ball and help other people grow so yeah that's that's an important factor yeah 100 percent. and obviously for me there's there's two main sides to the game or major sides to the game and that's playing it and, and watching it and i know from my point of view coming over to to australia one of the hard things for me without realizing it until i was experiencing it was missing going to the game um, but also sharing that experience with your friends and family at the same time um, I think about sport in Australia and you know I've been to the MCG a good number of times and I've been to the Adelaide Oval I've been to um, the, the I've been to the Gabba I've been to the SCG and a few other grounds as well and I, I don't necessarily perhaps I'm not looking that hard and I was sort of having a look at what the Premier League clubs do in the UK you'd expect with the money they've got for them really to be the mansion on the hill and, and, and leading by example um, from a, a disability inclusivity point of view. But there's various yeah. reports to say some are struggling and it's almost got to a point now where um, it, it's it's getting to the point of being a, crimi a criminal act to, for not meeting the government guidelines of having uh, disability spots or um, sensory rooms and things like that. Yeah, these are multi-share grounds in Australia, um, so it probably makes it hard for one sport to lead the charge and say we need to be more inclusive here. But do you think Australian sport is is missing an opportunity, or could maybe do a little bit more to make the grounds a, a bit more welcoming for people with disabilities, being physical or mental? Um, that's a big, big, big question on a, on an Australian scale. Um, yeah, no, I can only speak for, for what we've experienced and because we, we're in partnership with um, Adelaide United. Oh, right, okay. So um, f from like a smaller state scale, I know that um, Adelaide United have been extremely inclusive and, um, you know, they've given us opportunities to be half-time... This is both multicultural and disability. Yep. We've been um, half-time half-time players, um, the team mascots walking out the beginning. Um, they give us um, a lot of uh, free tickets that we can hand out to kids so that they have the opportunity to go. Um, I know that their grounds are very accessible for um, disability. We even have, because we have, um, we're now in charge of the power chair 
football in SA as well. So uh, okay. the um, the power chair players, they were the guard of honour as well. So um, speaking on a, on, a, on a lower level, they are extremely inclusive and they try really hard to to um, to be welcoming to everyone. Yeah, that's fantastic. Brilliant. Well, I guess I want to follow what you're doing a little bit more. What's the the best way to follow you on a, a social media? I've not looked yet, but is there an Instagram or a Facebook page and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So we've got the One Culture Football um, Instagram and Facebook page. Um, so that covers everything multicultural and disability. And then we've got the One Culture Support Services. So that's our branch off brand. Um that is the the disability side of things which isn't necessarily the football so it's the support work that we offer so one culture support services and we have the facebook and instagram for that as well so as you probably gathered one culture are far more than a place to play football and you'll know if you've coached at a club that you become you know, more than just the manager. Football, it builds trust between teammates, between coaches and players. It brings families together as well on a touchline that may not otherwise socialise or talk. What's amazing is one culture have recognised this and actually offer services beyond playing. They help people understand complex government systems so their audience can actually thrive on the pitch which in turn, you know, bolsters mood, productivity, mental health, but also help people away from the field too. I've moved country and I was lucky enough to get sponsored. I had accommodation waiting for me for a month when I got here, a well-paid job. Within a month, I was properly set up, but sorting out things like tax, banking, uh, learning how to secure permanent accommodation and, you know, how property and renting and things like that worked, that, that was stressful enough. And that's before you embark on trying to meet people and build a social network. If you come from another country with a lot less than what I've had, it's really tough. Now, I'm not saying Premier League clubs should have a social service desk or A-League clubs should have a social service desk. But at least it should be a place, uh, football, for all people to enjoy the sport they love. But it's not quite the case. Recently, I came across this report from the State of Play, which was put together in 2018 and it canvassed the 20 Premier League clubs of the day, but also a few recently relegated teams too, so 23 all in all. And it was an analysis of the facilities that clubs have for people with disabilities. Now, even if you don't have the precise demand for people with disabilities to come to your stadium and watch games, the law actually states you can't treat any person, law in the UK that is, you can't treat any person less favourably than any other and this includes people with disabilities attending football matches. Now a lot of these rules they have evolved over time so clubs have had to think about adapting or adapted what they have in terms of infrastructure at the stadiums. What's interesting though is the range of considerations and changes the clubs have made. So if you consider Arsenal and Manchester City at the time of the report Arsenal met all of the criteria Manchester City all but one and have brought that up to speed now. Um, just a couple that are ticking all of the boxes. Number of seats, location of seats, because you want to also have variety for disabled seats as well. You don't want to make the assumption that they're just going to sit by the touchline, um, where you may have the best view. Some people prefer to sit higher up. Location of toilets, um, autism rooms, um, 
sound and commentary equipment. A few other clubs, they're in older grounds and it can make these charge changes a little bit harder. For example, Burnley, Everton, Bournemouth, they're just a couple that um, weren't quite up to scratch and the stadium can be, or the age of the stadium can be a little bit of a barrier to that. But what's really concerning is there were a number of clubs highlighted for some major shortfalls. And when you think about how established some of these teams are, how successful some of these teams are, it's, it's, yeah, it's a little bit disappointing, I guess. Particularly with Chelsea, so they were lagging far behind, but were citing the eventual overhaul of Stamford Bridge as a reason not to make any changes at all across the next couple of years since the report was put together. And the main concern was the organisation behind the report, who were the Equality and Human Rights Commission. They actually looked to enter a formal agreement with Chelsea, so to outline commitments to change and put milestones in place to measure the progress. Chelsea initially refused. Now, they did, uh, I have to caveat this, later sign, but obviously it's quite disappointing that they wouldn't initially embark on just signing that agreement and working with the body to try and make improvements to the stadium to be more of an inclusive club. They're still behind the curve, though, with making the outline changes that they formed in the agreement. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there around uh, what action the EHRS might take towards or against the club. Additionally, Manchester United, Crystal Palace and now relegated Hull City and Sunderland, they were also invited to form agreements and they also declined. The major issue with Palace was the main stand and they outlined a plan uh, to bring it to standard by 2021. So I think that was the major difference for them there was really just you know one focal point that they needed to you know focus their attention on, um, and they were quite clear on when they should be able to achieve that. So again, it's going to be interesting to see how the club go with um, meeting the commitments that they've made. But I think that was the reason they didn't really enter the agreement is they already had a plan in place which the AHRS seemed quite content with, so as not to force the issue of going into the agreement. Hull and Sunderland were both relegated following the report and actually anticipated drops in crowds and felt the stadiums were already quite adequate for the demand that they've got. So at the um, at the time of putting the report together and discussing it with those clubs, the um, EHRC, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, actually opted not to enforce any legal action and, and monitor the situation for the, for the time being. Of course, both those clubs remain outside of the Premier League with slightly lower crowds than they would draw in the top flight. Now Manchester United, they were advised Old Trafford would be uh, Manchester United advised Old Trafford would be brought up to speed by the start of this season, um, and one of their issues was the installation of a sensory room. So they did actually make efforts to install one, but then consulted with an autism charity and were advised for various reasons it wouldn't be suitable. So I believe that's something that they're still still working on. Um, now there were twenty three clubs reviewed in the report. And a five key criteria around the number of disabled seats, having no more than 25% of those seats at pitch side, meeting requirements around easy access seating, toilets and sensory rooms. The clubs, those 23 clubs, had met 57% of that criteria on average and outlined improvements to take it to 67% in the next few years. Newcastle committed to no improvements at all and they were missing the mark, I think, on four out of five of the criteria. Now, 14 of these 23 clubs, so around about two-thirds, just under, they remain in the top flight. So even if we're forgiving of relegated clubs and don't bring into question promoted sides like Villa, Leeds, Sheffield United, Norwich, who came up and went down, for example, these remaining clubs, these 14 more consistent Premier League clubs, 
we're already meeting 70% of the criteria. So it shows you, you know, how um, being stable in the Premier League and having the money coming in of being in the Premier League perhaps allows you to make these changes. They were meeting 70% of the criteria and pledged improvements to take it up to 85%, which is, you know, getting us close to 100, which is fantastic. Now, level playing field, and they're a not-for-profit that works tirelessly on behalf of disabled fans to, well, have a level playing field for all people to watch the teams play. They show on their website the facilities each club has for disabled supporters. I've got to stress here, this data is provided by the clubs. The onus is on the club to provide this information to level playing field at the start of each season, which we've obviously started for 2020-21. So it does sit with these clubs to ensure that there is accuracy, but at the start of the 2021 season, which is A, delayed, and B, being played behind closed doors, they haven't really moved mountains, shall we say. And you'd think this is the ideal time to upgrade facilities. So let's have a look at the numbers. The AHRS says that all clubs meet sensory room requirements, but this is more things around um, audio commentary as opposed to sensory rooms. 10 out of those 14 clubs actually still don't have sensory rooms installed. Only two have installed them in the last three years and have actually shown that investment and commitment towards autism and fans with autism attending games. Six clubs didn't have enough disabled seating. Only one, Everton, who are in one of the oldest grounds in the league, and are also looking to move themselves. You think about Chelsea that weren't looking to make improvements because they were going to change the, the ground wholesale. Everton have managed to make improvements. They're the only one that's addressed this. So a caveat on this, though. Most clubs who do meet the requirement for the number, for the right number of disabled seats, don't have 75% of those seats away from pitch side to offer fans choice. Most of them have the seat allocation, but most of them have those seats still down by pitch side, limiting choice for disabled supporters. What's really interesting is Spurs, and they're in the newest ground in the league, they don't have enough easy access seats built into their stadium. So it seems like a major design shortfall from an inclusivity point of view um, on the part of, of Spurs, potentially. Um, now, if you look at some of the other changes that were due to take place, Burnley proposed three changes and made none of them. Chelsea proposed two changes along with United and Spurs, made none of them. Brighton, Leicester and Palace, Brighton, Leicester, Palace and West Ham all proposed a change each and made none of them. It was only City and Liverpool who actually met their commitments. Liverpool don't quite have a full suite yet, um, but uh, are definitely heading the right way. Now, what I don't understand is the Premier League's the richest club in the world, yet these are the numbers. You have all these clubs pledging to commitments two or three years ago now and aren't meeting the promises that they're making. It's 2020, you know, forget the financial constraints of coronavirus. This report's been out for a couple of years. It pertains to pledges made by clubs years ago. You know, they can't have it both ways. They can't lobby to get fans back into the grounds but not make these upgrades. But for me, this is the real question. You know, if an organisation like One Culture can start from nothing and provide the services they do on such a budget, can the elite level, especially those participating in the richest league in the world, maybe do a bit more? It is a bit frustrating and it can feel like there is little you can do, but it's not true. And in this keyboard warrior social media age, you know, you can ask your club what they're doing about this. Uh, you know, write to them on social media and say, what are you doing to address this? 
Um, there are other ways that you can influence this as well. You know, vote for an MP that will champion these rights. You know, both of the above two mentioned um, ideas, they're free, they cost you nothing but a little bit of your time. You could join your local grassroots club and help establish a mindset towards total inclusivity. You know, can you create sessions for a wider audience? Again, it just costs you time. Maybe join your supporters club or, you know, donate to organisations like your club's disabled fan group or a level playing field type organisation or equivalent. And I'll say this on all of the episodes if I do recommend something. There's no sponsorship attached to this podcast. This is just, you know, something I may have stumbled across during research. There's loads more organisations that champion fan equality in these rights, um, and I've noted a couple um, in the uh, in the podcast notes. So yeah, as we do stay away from the stadiums, you think when we do return to them, um, we need to think about ways of making the game more inclusive for everybody. And of course, doing these things, you know, they shouldn't detract away from some of the other fantastic things that are happening in and around football at the moment. There's some things that. I think leave a sour taste in our mouth when we think about you know project big picture and um, stuff like that. But obviously, I spoke about Marcus Rashford last week. Saint Marcus, he can't do no wrong at the moment. Um, he's doing fantastic on and off the pitch, isn't he? You know, you don't want to detract away from these issues of yeah, obviously supporting food banks and uh, perhaps people that are at or about to fall below the, the poverty line. Definitely not. Um, but. Yeah, this this is a topic that I think we have to think about, and you know, if we are experiencing lockdown situation, the world generally is less accessible for people um, that might have uh, physical disabilities or mental disabilities or, or whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's um, it's a huge time for compassion if we can uh, if we can find it within us to to share that. Now, a little bit of an announcement as well. Um, because next week I've, uh, I've got lots of thanks to give as we'll wrap up in the third and final instalment. A little bit of an announcement. We have started to work on a magazine, which we're hoping to get out in the next couple of weeks, hopefully by Christmas, maybe in the new year. I've um, been speaking to a few people that have um, been drawn to the podcast and the social media pages, and I'm really grateful for that. I'm really happy about that as well. I have to be honest, I've not done it for those reasons. I've done it because it was a, a winter lockdown project and a different way for me to maintain contact and engagement with football um, but a few people have been drawn to it and I'm, I'm really grateful for that so there's a little bit of collaboration going on in the background with a view to hopefully getting a small magazine put together which we might put out for free initially because it's all about creating a voice so we can share these positive social community stories it's um, certainly not designed to be any sort of uh, commercial venture or anything like that um, but we've got some some good stuff some good book reviews um, now we can travel a little bit more it'd be nice to get out with the camera and go and see some grassroots grounds and lower league grounds and snap some pictures and things like that so yeah watch this space and keep an eye on all the, the social media stuff for that um, I think initially we'll be getting the, the, the magazine into things like record shops and pubs and clothes shops probably here in, in Australia We'll see how it goes and then we might branch it out to um, a couple of other countries where I've got mates if they're kind enough to spend the Saturday afternoon dumping 50 magazines in 10 different pubs or whatever it might be but you never know um, it's all in the interests of um, having some fun around football initially and we'll see where it goes from there well anyway thanks again for tuning in really appreciate it um, hope, uh, hope you stay well wherever you may be um, this has been the Concourse Football Podcast recorded studio in Elwood, Melbourne, on the traditional level.
stay safe and see you next week for episode 3.